We are uh, starting a new series. It's a new year, and um, it's exciting to be together. And uh, thank you for making it this morning. I know the, the weather was inclement and uh, not a lot of fun. I stepped out front and turned around and went back inside. I still had to leave to come out, but I want to let everybody know that it's pretty bad out there. So thanks for being here. We are um, going to be doing a tour through the book of Exodus. If you've read Exodus before, you know that it's long. And if you can count pages, you can see that it's pretty long, right? Forty chapters. It's the second book of the Bible. And um, so uh, we're going to take a while to go through it. You know, Woody and I don't really breeze through books too quickly. And uh, you, you probably noticed that. I don't know if you did or not. But um, we're going to go for several months on this and work our way through the book of Exodus. But before we go uh, much farther, let me uh, go to the Lord in prayer. And let's ask his blessing. Father, we come to you this morning because uh, uh, you are God. You are sovereign. You are in control. And um, this is your word. These are your people. Uh, this is your time. And uh, I pray that you would do your ministry in our hearts by your spirit. I pray that we would be submitted to you, that we would listen for what you have for us, that uh, uh, the familiar things that we cover would not be familiar, but that they would be uh, profound. And the unknown things would would become uh, important in our lives. I pray that you would teach us by your word and by your spirit this morning. I pray that you'd help us to set aside worries about weather or uh, uh, other concerns uh, that we might have uh, about what has gone before, what comes after. I pray that we'd be able to put that aside and be right here in your word right now, waiting for you to minister to us. And we we, uh, come to this time, uh, this kind of worship and this time of worship to sit at your feet and hear from you. And so we pray that you would do your work even now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so book of Exodus, second book of the Bible. If you're using a pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 45, and we're not going to cover a whole lot today. You may be uh, disheartened to know we're only going to cover seven verses out of the 40 chapters today, and you're doing some calculations in your head, and you're thinking, are you still going to be alive when we finish? <laughs> but we, we will pick up the pace. But... Um, we're just going to cover the first seven verses and kind of kind of get an idea of what's going on in this book and kind of get a, a grasp, kind of get a running start at what we're doing here. And um, you're familiar with A.W. Tozer, I'm sure. He had a, a very famous quote. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's powerful. And that, that's profound. What do you think about God? What do you think about Him? What, what, uh, what's God's standard for your behavior? What, what are your thoughts in that regard? Where is He when uh, His people are suffering? How do you think, how do you think about God in those terms? We prayed about uh, some people this morning who were suffering, going through difficult times with cancer, and uh, and we just lost Pete Ernst uh, and had his um, had his funeral just this week, and his wife suffering, his family suffering. Where is God in the midst of that suffering? What do you think about that? What do you think about God as to why He shows mercy to us at all? We talked about this in Sunday school, and we. We, we ask the question, does, does God owe us mercy? Do we deserve mercy from God? Why does he show us mercy? Or 
What are your thoughts in regards to what God's true nature is like? What is He really like? These kind of thoughts about God, they're the most important thing about you, according to Tozer, and I agree. How can we worship God in spirit and in truth? How can we really worship Him? And how can I know God's presence? So these questions and others, questions about God that are so important, the book of Exodus happens to answer. It addresses each one of these. And so it's a, it's a very powerful book for us that's going to uh, be helpful in helping us understand these things about God and about ourselves. And so, um, you know, I don't know when the last time you read all the way through the book of Exodus was. Uh, you're, you're very familiar, even if you've seen the Ten Commandments, right, the movie The Ten Commandments. By the way, in talking to the teenagers, I talk about the Ten Commandments and Charlton Heston, they no idea, no clue what I'm talking about. Everybody else has seen it. It was my first exposure to the Bible, right? Every year it was on I, when I was a kid. So some of it's going to be very familiar. Some of it's going to be brand new, right? Some of it's going to be difficult to grasp. But the book of Exodus teaches us a lot about who God is and about how to worship him. All these questions we just asked, the book of Exodus answers. So I want to start off by reading just the first seven verses of the first chapter. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Well, you see, if you remember the story about how Israel got down into Egypt in the first place, you kind of have to go back to Genesis, the first book of the Bible, which uh, talks about the formation not, of, not only of all that we see, right, the creation of everything that is, but also the formation of uh, the people of faith, starting with Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and then Jacob's sons that were just listed here, right? Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. So uh, they had been called and uh, formed into a people. Well, how did they end up in Egypt? How did they end up in Egypt? And um, so we want to look at how they got here. If you'll flip real quickly to Genesis 37, just left a couple of pages, not a whole lot. You remember Joseph, if you guys have... have uh, um, are familiar with the Joseph story, you can remember that his, he seemed like he was kind of an arrogant guy and he was kind of bragging about what, uh, you know, what, um, his, what God had promised him and his special relationship with his father and whatnot. And his brothers didn't like him very much. And so he shows up to check up on him, which is a lot of fun when your little brother comes to check up on you, right? When your dad sent your little brother to check up on you. So he shows up to, to check up on his brothers and they don't like it very much. And so we read in chapter 37, verse 28, what happens is they uh, capture him, deciding what to do with him. They debate whether to kill him or not. Uh, but then in verse uh, 28 of chapter 37 of Genesis, then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up because they had thrown him down into a pit. And they lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Right? And so that's how Joseph got down there. Right? He was in chains. He was, he was a slave. He had been beat up by his brothers, almost killed. And the, his brothers mercifully sold him into slavery down in Egypt. So that's how he got there. 
you remember that story. And uh, of course, he he goes there and he he serves Potiphar and he, things go well with Potiphar and until they don't go so well with Potiphar's wife, she hits on him. He doesn't reciprocate, and so uh, she she uh, raises the alarm. He gets arrested. He gets thrown into prison. Then he's in prison. You remember this whole story, right? About how Joseph ended up down there. Well, through a long string of events, God continued to bless Joseph, and Joseph continued to obey God. And the result was that God put Joseph in charge of. Um, sort of like as prime minister of all of Egypt. So he was in charge of things, and that was a good thing because there was a famine coming, right? And there, was, there were portents, dreams about these uh, famines uh, that were coming. They were going to, there were going to be years of plenty followed by years of famine. People were going to die all over the place, and Joseph knew what to do about it. And so he stocked up grain, stocked up grain during the, during the full years, and then he was able to not only... Uh, survive and survive as a nation on what he had stocked up, but he was also able to sell some to neighboring peoples who would uh, who would come down and uh, first of all the people of Egypt, then also people from other countries, including Joseph's family. So Joseph's in charge of everything, right? He's the prime minister down in Egypt. He shouldn't be in Egypt. He was sold from Canaan down into Egypt, but he's a prime minister down there. Well, uh, unbeknownst to uh, to his brothers, his brothers are sent to Joseph. Uh, but they don't know it's Joseph, and they go down and they're going to ask for for some food because they're starving to death up in Canaan. What are they going to do? And and you remember that whole story. So, but it ends up that uh, Jacob is uh, Jacob finds out that actually the prime minister is Joseph because Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, and Jacob says, "Let's go down." They end up all everybody comes down, everybody moves down from Canaan down into the land of Egypt, and so that's how the people got there. In Genesis forty-seven four. Uh, the the, the uh, sons of Israel uh, say to Pharaoh, this is uh, Genesis chapter 47, verse 4, he says, We've come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And so they're able to move down from a place where there was no food down into a place where there was uh, adequate food. And not only that, but their brother was in charge of everything. Right, so that's a good thing. So they move down there. They're kind of given the land of Goshen, or they move into the land of Goshen, and they have peace. And so they're guests, and they're even honored guests to go and, and live in that place. And so that's how they got down there. They shouldn't be in Egypt, but they are. That's how they got there. But they're they're guests, and things are going well. But that was 400 years ago. That was 400 years ago, and so some things have changed. And. Uh, one of the things that changed, if you go back to Exodus chapter 1, one of the things that changed is when they went down there, verse 5, they were 70 persons. Their entire group, their entire band was 70 people, right? That's a big move to move 70 people, right? I, I mean, I've got a biggish family, right? <laughs> we're not 70 people, and uh, I've never, you know, I still haven't had to move even with just the eight of us. I can't imagine moving 70 people, but they go down there and they're just 70 people. That's quite a bit, but for the people of God in all the earth, it's 70 total people. That's like, you know, one section, right? It's not a, not a big deal. But look, look at what we see here. Look at verse 7. So they had been 70 people, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So they started out as 70, 400 years ago, and now they've multiplied enormously. Those, uh, those, if you remember back to the first command in the Bible, does anybody know it offhand? 
what the first command, the first imperative in Scripture is? All the way back to Genesis. All the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Right? And so we had these, these kind of, that, that command given to Adam way back in Genesis chapter 1. And, and as you look at what Adam and Eve are supposed to do, and as you look at what all of God's created uh, order was doing, all of the animals, all the, you know, big animals, little animals, all this stuff, they were, they were teeming and they were multiplying and they were all over the place, right? And you have that, those same kinds of words used here for uh, the nation of Israel, the Hebrew children, that they were fruitful. They were supposed to be fruitful. That's, that's Genesis 1.28, but they were really fruitful, right? God was really blessing them. They increased greatly. Literally, that's the word for teeming or swarming, right? You think back to the creation account and all the stuff that crawls around on the ground and the birds and the whatnot. It's all going to teem and it's going to swarm because it's everywhere. And that was used of the people of God, the children of Israel. They increased greatly. So they were fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied all over the place, right? You're starting to get the picture, but he's not done yet. He says they grew exceedingly very strong, right? They, they were super abundant. They were all over the place, so much so that verse 7 says they filled the land, right? They filled the land. And so you have God's blessing on God's people. They came down there 700 or uh, 400 years ago. They came down as 70 people from the land of Canaan down to the land of Egypt, and they have multiplied like crazy. God has blessed them enormously, so much so that they filled everything. So much so that our author here would say, use all these different words to talk about, yeah, they really multiplied. It would have been enough to say, and they multiplied, but he wasn't done. They also teamed and filled the place, and they grew exceedingly strong, so much so they, they filled the land. They were all over the place. And so God is blessing them. They've gone from 70 to filling the land, right? The problem is, that's going to be a problem on two accounts. Right? It's going to be a problem for them that they've multiplied so much. The first problem is a problem for the Israelites. Flip back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 12. So go left, left, left in your Bible. Genesis chapter 12. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's going to be on page 8. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3. Genesis chapter 12 is when God calls Abram, right? And he calls him out of his land where he was, and he's going to tell him some stuff. Right, And he becomes the first of the people of God. Okay, Genesis chapter 12, page 8 in your Bible, if you're using the Pew Bible. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So I'm going to, I'm going to show you a land. And what was the land he showed them? It was the land of Canaan. That's where they were supposed to be. So they traveled from where they were and, and uh, traveled, ended up in the land of Canaan. And remember, uh, God had conversations with Abram looking around saying, all this is going to be yours and, and all that stuff, right? That, that was the land that was given to them. And you're going to be fruitful and you're going to multiply and, and you're going to be a blessing to all the earth. And now we come to Exodus chapter one and we see that sure enough, they've been fruitful and they've multiplied. They're all over the place. They've been blessed by God enormously. They're in the wrong land. They're not supposed to be in Egypt. They're supposed to be populating the land of Canaan. 
that was the promised land, the land that was given to them. So them uh, teeming and multiplying and, and swarming and growing strong and filling the land is happening in the wrong land. And so it's going to be a problem for Israel. But it's also going to be a problem for Egypt, right? What happens with, uh, with Egypt is they bring these foreigners into their land. They stick them over in the corner of the land of Goshen and, and just let them, let, let them be there happy. They'll be fine. They'll leave us alone until they explode. And now all of a sudden they're everywhere, right? And if you're the Egyptian authorities, you're thinking, this is not good news. We've got foreigners who are outnumbering uh, the Egyptians. And that's, that's, uh, that's fine if they're doing work for us. That's fine if they're just participating in the labor force or whatever. But what happens if an invading army comes? Or what happens if, uh, if an enemy steps up? And what happens if these Hebrews who are everywhere decide to join the other side? Now all of a sudden we're doubly outnumbered. Bad news. And so it's going to be a problem for the, Isra- or for the Israelites, but it's also going to be a problem for the Egyptians because they're outnumbered by foreigners. And so uh, that sets the stage for the events that are going to happen in the book. That's all background stuff, bringing us up to speed to what's going to happen in the book itself. And so uh, Exodus is a, is a very important book. It's not only going to deal with those events, there, and those are very important events, but it's, uh, it's going to have some other importance as well. But first, let's talk about the importance of the events. Probably more than any other book in the Old Testament, the, the book of Exodus describes for us and explains the formation of the nation of Israel. If you think back to Genesis 12 that we just looked at, that was God calling Abram and his family and, and uh, blessing them and growing them into the people of God. But you can see that by the end of the book of Genesis, there, there's 70 people. 70 people does not a nation make. And so they're not a nation yet. But during our time here in the book of Genesis or in the book of Exodus, they have multiplied greatly. And God is going to take them from being a tribe or some tribes and make them into a nation. God had made a covenant with them that involved having possession of the land of Canaan and being a great nation. And in Genesis, they lived in the land of Canaan, but they were few in number. They were weak. They were vulnerable. And now they've moved down to the land of Egypt and they're plentiful but they're in the wrong land. And the promise was that they would be plentiful and they would be in the land. God brings the people out of the land by means of the ten plagues. If you think forward to what's going to happen in the book of Exodus, uh, we can think through the events. And for most of us, our knowledge of Exodus kind of stops at the end of maybe Passover or something like that, the end of the ten plagues, right? These, These big miraculous plagues God is going to use to convince Pharaoh to let the people go. And so there, there are 10 of them and they involve gnats and blood and, and all kinds of stuff, right? But God is convincing Pharaoh that it would be better for him to let the people go, actually to make them go, to drive them out of the land than it would be to keep them there. And so God is going to do that. He's going to use these, uh, these big events, the plagues, and uh, it's going to get, they're going to be directed directly towards Egypt, directly towards Pharaoh to convince it, uh, to convince Pharaoh to let them go. And that it actually ends up kind of being Pharaoh's idea that it would be better if they were just gone. And not only that, not only that, not only they they have freedom from the land, not only do they have freedom from the oppression that has come upon them because the Egyptians are afraid of them and decide to use them for, for forced labor and whatnot, not only that, not only do they get to escape, but they also get their way funded by the Egyptians. Do you realize that? Their travel is funded. They, they plunder the Egyptians because the Egyptians are like, here, take my stuff and leave. I want you out of here. And so they, they actually give them riches. 
and, uh, and they take it away. So the Egyptians actually fund their departure. That's just like God. Once they're out of Egypt, this is, this is where it gets a little bit less clear for us. For most of us who, who know the events, we, we remember the stories from Sunday school or, or we remember the movie, The Ten Commandments or something like that. Uh, and the story gets a little more fuzzy right here because after they get out of the land, after they're, after they're beyond and they're into Sinai, then they're given the law. Right? And the law becomes the defining characteristic of what it means to be a Jew. What it means to be the nation of Israel is defined by the law. So God's stamp has been put on this people. Not only did he deliver them and he's fulfilling promises to them, but he also put his special stamp on them with the law of God that he gives them. And not only that, not only do they have the law, but during this time in Exodus, when they're wandering through uh, the wilderness, they're on their way into the land. Not only do they have the law and they've been delivered from Egypt, but they also receive the tabernacle. The tabernacle means like a big fancy tent where the law was placed, where worship was centered, where sacrifices happened, where the, where the priests worked and all that stuff. So they were given the tabernacle, which was their place of worship. And it traveled around with them until they get into the land and then they build the temple. You remember hundreds of years later, Solomon builds the temple and that becomes the center of their worship. And we get all the way to the New Testament and you read stories about Jesus walking into the temple. It was a temple that had been rebuilt, but it was the temple. And so God does very special things uh, to and for the nation of Israel, including revealing self to the, uh, himself to the people in ways that he never had before. There are revelations of God about himself in the book of Exodus like, like has never happened before. We get a picture of him that's, that's, uh, that we can't compare with anything else that we get. And not only that, but they get to go forward in the very presence of God. They get to have God's presence. And after 400 years of suffering in Egypt, what a blessing. They get to go with God's presence. And that's how the book of Exodus ends. They're traveling with the presence of God in their midst. That's a blessed thing. So the events of Exodus, they're so important because they're foundational to the very existence of Israel as a people and the defining of who they are. That's the importance of the events. What about the importance of the book? Well, you might be surprised to know that no other Old Testament book is quoted or referred to by any other Old Testament book more than Exodus is. Exodus is referred to by... So like if you, you know, flip to Matthew and put your hand there, everything left of that, there's no other book referred to more frequently by those other Old Testament authors than is the book of Exodus. And even in the New Testament, which has the Old Testament to look at, Exodus is quoted the third most frequently behind Psalms and Isaiah. And that kind of makes sense because the Psalms are a lot, a lot of liturgy, a lot of songs, a lot of things like that. There's a lot of instruction in the book of Psalms, plus it's huge. And the book of Isaiah, which is talking about the Messiah, which is the New Testament Uh, is the fulfillment of that. And so it's the third most frequently quoted book in the New Testament. So it's very high in importance by other other biblical authors. They uh, looked upon it with greater respect nearly than any other book. One, One commentator put it this way. He said, in the book of Exodus, God gives Israel his special name, his special deliverance, his special guidance, his special covenant, his special worship, his special mercy, and his special description of himself. The Torah, and thus the Bible, is born in Exodus. So we're going to read about the birth of the Bible. Right? So that's the importance of the book itself. 
Well, let's look at some things. We're going to finish here with what, what Exodus teaches us. What is, I mean, this is an Old Testament book. You know, you probably don't spend a lot of time doing your devotions out of Exodus unless it's, you know, because you like the plagues and they're exciting or because you're reading the Ten Commandments like we did in Sunday school today, right? Probably don't spend a ton of time reflecting on doing your devotions in the book of Exodus, but there is a lot that it will teach us. And, and it will teach us that in ways that we, that we don't really learn anywhere else in Scripture, especially in such a compact way. So many massive themes that are going to be unpacked later on by other authors. Isaiah works on that. Paul works on that. They're going to be, these themes are going to be unpacked. Certainly Jesus teaches from Exodus. But we see them in their beginning right here in the book of Exodus. First of all, the first thing I want us to note that, that uh, God teaches us in the book of Exodus is about uh, the fact that He remembers His covenant. He remembers His covenant. I'm reading now from Exodus chapter 2 and looking at verses 23, 24, and 25. So this is, this is after Egypt has observed, wow, these Hebrews are everywhere. They've multiplied, they, they outnumber us, and that's okay if they're working for us, but if they turn against us, that's bad news, and so let's just keep them as slaves, right? So they live under that for, you know, for some time, and, and you, hear, you see here in chapter 2 and verse 23, during those many days... The king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue and slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He remembered that he had given that promise to Abraham, and then repeated it to him, and then given it to Isaac, and then given it to Jacob. He remembered that he had made those promises. Look, I'm going to form you into a great nation. You're going to be a blessing for all, all the people of the world. I'm going to give you this land, and you're going to multiply and be strong. And those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you. He repeated that to each of them. And now here they are, slaves in the land, and have been for hundreds of years. But he remembers. I love that it says there, God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He remembers his covenant. By the way, for us, that means that he won't forget his promises to us either. I will never leave you nor forsake you, he says. He meant that. He keeps his promises. Or the promise that's where Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's a promise. And God remembers his promises. He also delivers his people. He delivers his people. Look, look at Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. This is the song of Moses. By the way, if you've ever seen Prince of Egypt, the cartoon, the Disney cartoon, the kids walking out singing this Hebrew song. It's this song, by the way. I had a very smart Hebrew professor one time that figured that out. I wouldn't know that otherwise, but it's this song. They didn't sing the whole thing, but listen to what the people say when God delivers them. This is their song. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. 
This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill in them. I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? God delivers his people. God delivers his people. Do you need deliverance? There are some in here who need deliverance from the dominion of sin in their lives. They've been walking in sin. They know better. There's deliverance to be found from sin in God. There is deliverance to be found from the punishment for sin because Jesus took it on himself. There's deliverance to be found in God. Do you need deliverance from oppression like the people of Israel did? You're being held down. God delivers his people. Thirdly, God reveals his name and nature. He reveals his name and nature. Flip back to Exodus chapter 3. By the way, we're not always going to dance around in the book like this, but as an introduction, I wanted to hit some key points, and so we end up flipping the pages a lot and going to different uh, different spots. We won't normally do that, but open to uh, Exodus chapter 3, and there's a great revelation of God here. Here at the burning bush. Right, look at verses 14 through 16. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. God reveals himself as the great I am. That means a lot of things. It means eternity, but it also means self-existence. He's self-existent. He has always existed as he is. He will always exist. His existence is not contingent upon anything else, upon the will of anything else, upon the purpose of anything else, upon the action of any, anything else, anyone else. He exists. That's his nature. I am. Tell them I am has sent you. And then in chapter 33, I'll just read this to you, verses 18 and 19. We have a very powerful passage. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. 
And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So not only is he self-existent, his existence doesn't depend on the air he breathes or anything else. He's self-existent, but not only is he self-existent, he's self-determined. He is free and he is the only free being in existence, meaning his decision, his action is not contingent upon the decision or the action of someone before him. He is free. He is self-determined. He is not contingent upon another for his being, nor is he contingent in actions upon the actions of another. He chose Israel not because of who they were or their great potential or their qualities. He chose Israel because of who he is. That's the nature of who God is, and that's the nature of his righteousness. He is the highest standard, the highest perfection, and so he makes decisions based upon who he is as the highest standard and the highest perfection. So God reveals his name and nature, and God gets glory. God gets glory. Again and again in Exodus, God makes clear that he will be recognized as the sovereign God over the gods of Egypt, including Pharaoh. He will get glory over them. Reading from chapter 9 and uh, verses 13 through 16, we read this. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God gets glory. In raising up Pharaoh the way he did, he very deliberately got glory over Pharaoh and over Pharaoh's gods, over the gods of the Egyptians. He demonstrated that he himself is higher. He himself is mightier. He himself is the self-existent and the self-determined one. He gets glory over all the other gods. We need to know who this God is that we, that we worship. God thought it important enough to teach the people of, uh, of Israel in the events of the Exodus and through the book of, of Exodus. And he thought it was important enough for Pharaoh to know who was defeating him, who was dominant over him. We need to know who God really is in order to be able to worship him in spirit and in truth. And so along those same lines, God also gives his word in the book of Exodus. He gives his word. The giving of, of the Ten Commandments in chapter 20 is the birth of the law. It's the birth of the Bible itself. He writes that law down on tablets and he tells Moses to place those tablets which contain the heart of the law into the Ark of the Covenant. And that Ark of the Covenant, remember, is placed inside the center of the tabernacle, their place of worship. So let's be real clear on what exactly that means. The nations all around them had these graven images. We talked about uh, having no graven images Right In uh, Sunday school class, we talked about that. All the nations around them would make these images of their God, and they would put that image in a temple because they needed a place to house this image. Well, they didn't believe that this little action figure was actually their God. That was a means through which they were worshiping their God. Their God actually lived in some heaven 
somewhere in some heavenly realm. But this was the means by which they were worshiping that God. And so since they had this fancy, you know, idol thing and it was probably valuable and they were bringing offerings to it. And so gold would pile up and whatnot. They would house it somewhere. And so they would build a temple. Right. And so they would put that idol in the temple and that temple would protect the idol. And that's where they would go to worship because that was the that that idol was a thing through which they worshiped their God. So God gives Moses what? The Ten Commandments. And he puts the Ten Commandments in the ark and he puts the ark in the center of the tabernacle, which would become the center of the temple. The point being that it is the word of God through which we worship God. And there is no other way. That's the only way we can worship God. That's what God's saying when he puts the Ten Commandments on those, on those plates and he puts them into the Ark of the Covenant, into the Holy of Holies. You can only worship me by the Word of God. And so that's why we, as a church, spend so much time preaching. Because this is how we worship God. We don't worship God by having some emotional experience. True worship will involve emotions, but having an emotional experience about God is not necessarily worship if it's not governed by the Word of God. It's the Word of God itself that is the thing through which we worship God. And so ask yourself the question, how much do you value God's Word? This is the only way you can get to Him, by the way. You say, well, I get to Him through Jesus. Yes, you do get to Him through Jesus. And where do you learn about Jesus? Where do you learn about what Jesus is really like? What He really expects? What He really did for you? What He really says? You only learn it in here. And so to the degree to which we don't value God's Word, we're, we're devaluing true worship in spirit and in truth. And so God was very gracious when He gave His Word to His children. And finally, God gives His presence. He gives His presence. Chapter 33 again, verses 14 through 17, He said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence, this is Moses saying to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be that I have found favor in your sight? How shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other nation on the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight. That's the distinction of the people of God. The presence of God in their midst. They get to go with the presence of God in their midst. That was a promise in chapter 33, and you see it fulfilled at the end of the book in chapter 40. Flip there, right to the end of Exodus. Chapter 40, and that closing paragraph is powerful there. I'll start in verse 33. This is Exodus chapter 40, verse 33. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. So the whole tabernacle is all set up. The Ark of the Covenant is in its place. The Word of God is in the midst of that. Everything is set up. The priests are all arranged. They've got their, their ordained for ministry. Everything's ready to go. All right, we've got, we've got all the pieces in place. 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. And if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the temple or the, on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. God's presence had settled amongst his people and would travel with them. Do you need God's presence? More than anything, you need God's presence. Like the Israelites, though, we're going to see as we, as we go through the book of Exodus, they had opportunities. They wanted to see God. They wanted to be in his presence. And then that opportunity was realized. And what did they do? They panicked because God's holy. Uh, Moses, you better go talk to him yourself and we'll stand over here to, at a safe distance because God's holy and he's powerful. And if we come too close, we're going to get fried. So Moses, good luck, buddy. Why don't you go talk to him? They were afraid and they were rightly afraid. And we should be rightly afraid to approach God. We are not a holy people, and He is a holy God. The only way they could approach God, the only way they could have God's presence, was with this system set up with the Word of God in the middle, worship being directed the way God had said it should be, being mediated. We should be afraid to approach God. If, if we would have a right understanding of who God is, we would not be buddy-buddy about Him and write about Him in, uh, in, in glowing and soft and cushy terms. We would be afraid. And that's how we should be. But that's not the end. That's not the end. We should be afraid until we learn that there is salvation in no one else than Jesus Christ. And there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. God has made a way for unrighteous people like us to be in God's presence so that we can have God's presence, so that God will lead us with his presence. There's only one way, and that's Jesus himself. Because we are a fallen people. We are a messy people. We are unholy. We are not good. And God is good. We need a mediator. And that mediator is Jesus himself, the Son of God who came down as one of us, but who lived perfectly, who always obeyed the Father, who was actually God in the flesh, and willingly went to the cross to bear the punishment that you deserve for your sin and that I deserve for my sin. He took that. And he offers himself as the way to worship God, the way to be made right with God. And so that's my, that's my challenge for us, for everyone this morning, that we would think in those terms, that we would understand that the very people who had been chosen by God were afraid to be in His presence because they would be burned alive. That's a proper understanding of who God is. But God made a way that we could be reconciled. We could be made right with God, and that way is in Jesus Himself. And so my prayer is that everyone in here will understand that. And everyone in here will run to Jesus as the only way to be made right with God, the only way to be in God's presence, the only way to become the, the recipient of God's promises that he keeps. The only way to be delivered is in Jesus himself. Let's pray.
Father, we come to you now because of Jesus. It's, it's the only way we could come into your presence and not be, uh, not be cast out or not be uh, burned. But because of Jesus, because of his offering for us, and because we have trusted in him and in him alone, we get to come into your presence and, and even with boldness to cry out to you as your children. And you, and you hear and you know. Lord, I pray that you would deliver anyone this morning who does not know you. Anyone who has heard about you has, um, maybe this is a first time, maybe this is a thousandth time. I pray that you would deliver them, that they would see you as holy and their knees would shake and then they would remember that Jesus offered himself to pay the penalty for their sin, that they could be in your presence without trembling knees, but with joy, with rejoicing, with thanks because of our mediator, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would save anyone in here who does not believe that. I pray that you would draw them to yourself. And Lord, as we enter into uh, this study that's going to be some time, I pray that you would bless our study, that we would see you in new and powerful ways, that we ourselves would be changed as we behold you in your glory in the book of Exodus. God, do your work, we pray, through this book and in us. We commit our hearts to you. We commit our lives to you. We look forward to seeing what you have this week. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. May God bless you and you're dismissed.